Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. All right. So even though the last few uh, podcasts, if you're listening to this from the podcast, did not were not titled as a series, they are pretty much a series. Um, I should probably go back and retitle them so they're more clear, but Basically, I want to conclude tonight the series of four or five Dharma talks that we've been exploring around the Satipatthana reframe. So one last time, I'll get us grounded and explain to you where the context is for what we're going to talk about today. And then we're going to talk about the last two parts of clinging. So what we've been talking about is the fact that in the Satipatthana Sutta, along with the suggestion of four foundations of mindfulness, which is the topics or themes of meditation, so our body, feelings, mind, mind stuff, uh, which includes thinking and mood, uh, and dharmas, which is essentially spiritual concepts. With those four foundations, there are also four suggestions on how to use the four foundations for awakening. And these are considered the foundational principles of the Satipatthana Sutta. And sometimes we overlook them, so that's why I started doing these talks, so we can remind ourselves of some of these basic suggestions that the Buddha has with these teachings. And so I'll just tell you where we've been. Uh, We talked about the first suggestion is to practice internally and externally. That's on the cushion, off the cushion, uh, awareness on self, and then awareness on others, watching other folks uh, in relationship to us. So that's the first suggestion. The second one that we explored was arising and passing, which of course is uh, impermanence. Any of the foundations can be used to explore impermanence. That can be your complete meditation practice. The third one that we talked about was uh, cultivating bare knowledge or bare attention and continuous mindfulness. I believe we did that two weeks ago. And that's about uh, concentration and equanimity and using concentration and equanimity with the four foundations of mindfulness as our focus. And then the last one that we've been talking about is the encouragement the Buddha has for us to use the four foundations of mindfulness to cultivate non-clinging. And not just non-clinging, but as the quote goes, non-clinging to anything of this world. Non-complete letting go. And this can be done through any of the four foundations of mindfulness. And so last week... We talked about a couple types of clinging, which were sensuality clinging and view clinging. And sensuality clinging is just our clinging to sense pleasures. And view clinging is exactly what it says. It's our attachment to points of view, attachments to our deep held opinions, our bedrock perceptions of what the world is and how it should be, our our organizing principle, if you will, towards our sense contact. So clinging of view, clinging of sensations, clinging of sensuality. Those were the first two. And today we're going to conclude the whole set with habit and practice clinging and self or identity clinging. And as I think I said, probably four or five Dharma talks ago, I realized that this topic is just like hugely expansive, like 
every every aspect of the teaching has a list of four things and then those things have four more things and it's just it gets crazy when you start talking about these these four these four lines of the Sadi Patana Sutta. Uh, so if it if it <laughs> if it feels confusing, if you just go back and listen to the last few podcasts, you'll see that it does have a continuity to it, and I hope it brings kind of into fullness this sense of this part of uh, of this part of the teaching. So we're going to talk about habit and practice clinging. I want to hit that first because this one's really important, and. Habit in practice clinging is also sometimes seen, uh, called attachment to rites and rituals, or ritual clinging, or sometimes I've even I've even heard it called rule clinging, R U L E rule clinging. And so, this has always been an interesting translation for me when I've when I've seen this. And so, it's important I think just to know where this teaching actually comes from or has its roots. It has an expanded application, but. This idea of don't cling to rites and rituals, right? Letting go of rites and rituals really is a not so subtle poke at the Brahmins. Okay, so this is a very a not so subtle, like, yeah, it, it's a power struggle between Buddhism essentially and the Brahmanic rituals of the Buddha's day. So at the time of the Buddha, Brahmanical society was had a significant amount of power and the Brahmins had a lot of power because they were the priestly class and they were the ones that oversaw the spiritual rituals. They're the ones that chanted the Vedas. They were the ones that knew the hymns and the prayers and the mantras. And they were the only ones who could initiate the rites and rituals. And in the context of that spiritual orientation, the rites and rituals were everything. It was sort of the foundational structural of not over spiritual society, but it gave meaning and credence to even the caste system. So it was a pretty um, significant power that the Brahmins had and their spiritual orientation was ritualistic. It was ritual based. So the rituals themselves were the practices and they were in the hands of the Brahmins. So when the Buddhists and the Jains, when Buddhism and Jainism came around, this was actually a threat to the established religious order because the Buddhists and the Jains were renunciates. They renounced the caste system and their spiritual practices were individualistic. There weren't a need for priests anymore. We don't have priests in a sense in the Dharma, at least not the way we see in in the Brahmanical tradition. So when the Buddha says, don't cling to rites and rituals, there's a psychology, psychological reason, but he's also just poking, poking at the Brahmins as well. And I think we can, uh, we can see that that's, it's pretty obvious if you take it in a historical context. So uh, he's like, don't cling and don't cling to your rituals. If you happen to be practicing rituals, don't cling to them, which everyone was practicing rituals. So that's where this comes from. If you ever hear it translated as rites and rituals clinging, that's, that's the foundation. But to broaden this, of course, into our practice... To broaden this into our practice, it's important to know that habits, right, our emotional habits, our physical habits, these things are so ingrained in us and so hard to change that once we cling to them, it's very hard to let go. So it makes sense that this would be a real topic when the Buddha talks to talks about grasping and suffering, that we really look deeply at the habituation of the mind and how the mind clings and takes refuge and finds safety in repetition, right? Repetition of a way of living. 
So I wanted to just dive into a little bit of that part so you can see why this is so important. And I'm going to give you just a, a couple clarifying definitions here uh, to get us on the same page. So when we look at the term habit, right, all we're really talking about is a consistent, repetitive behavior, right? Something that's consistent and repetitive. So we all have habits, right? Things that we do pretty regularly. And these habits then come together to form routines. So a routine would be a series of habits that we string together regularly in our life. And these routines can become extremely meaningful and ritualized, meaning the routine or the set of habits gains such significant meaning that we begin to really cling to it, right? We really like the ritual, we like the habit, and we want to have it happen over and over again because of the way it feels to engage. So we've got these habits that the mind strings together as routines, and then they become ritualized and, oh, what's the word? Not invoked, embodied, right? They become embodied representations of our identity. And so think of it in terms of something really basic, like, do you have a morning routine, right? Do you have a habit when you get up in the morning of grabbing a cup of coffee or grabbing a cup of tea? Do you have a habit of doing particular activities throughout the week that you really enjoy, but it's habitual. It's something you do regularly. I was thinking when I was writing up the Dharma talk, I was thinking of, you know, okay, so what are my habits, right? What are my rituals that I'm attached to? And I've got, you know, certain friends that I only see every so often. And we have a ritual or a habit of going out for coffee and talking about maybe the Dharma or talking about what's going on in our lives in a particular way. And I'm really attached to the ritual coffee, right? The ritual coffee hour that happens once a month with which some of my friends I don't see very often. So that's an example of a habit in my life that there's a certain identity around. There's a certain joy that I get. I want it to continue to happen, right? I have a clinging, I cling to it and I give energy to it, right? I give energy to this habit. So when we're thinking of habits, it could be anything, any consistent behavior or physical manifestation that, that you engage in, that's a habit, right? That's a practice habit, as the Buddha calls it. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the physicality of how the joys in our life take form in the world, right? Where do we get our joy? Maybe you have a yoga class you go to now and again, or maybe you're doing yoga online, like through YouTube or something, but it's a habit, right? You do it, you go to the class, you enjoy it. There's a happiness and contentment, and then the mind and heart reach out and they want, it wants to have it again. And if for some reason you can't have the next incarnation of that habit, then there's disappointment and dukkha, right? We feel let down or disquieted because it didn't happen again. And we're so used to the habit to continue happening. Now, the most obvious one is still going to be religious rites and rituals, right? Like annual holidays, or maybe you have a certain time of the year that you go visit family. Like maybe summer is your thing and it's a ritual and you go see family or you go see friends or summer comes and I don't know, Pacific Northwest. So we go hiking and biking and camping or whatever it is that we do, those ritual habits that really embody who we are as people and become part of our identity, right? Become part of our identity day to day. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about habits. So when it comes to the habits, separate from rites and rituals and 
physical or, or literal religious practices, the Buddha has a series of suggestions around what we should be doing with habits to look at the clinging, gain wisdom from the clinging, and even note that there's clinging to begin with. And so the first thing that the Buddha encourages us to do is to actually bring mindfulness to our habits and our routines because so many of them by nature are unconscious. So much of our living is habitual. It is, in fact, a habit of being, right? Certain ways of being we don't think about too much. We don't think about our morning routine or our evening routine or how we hang out with our kids or however the case is with work. We just, we have these routines that go over and over again. And we don't often take note of them until we bring mindfulness to them. So the first instruction with clinging to habits is to just, number one, acknowledge that the mind and heart takes refuge in habituation, right? And when we don't have that habit arise, then we might feel some suffering. We might feel some loss or some grief. So we look to see what are the non-conscious habits. And the best way I like to do this is just journaling. You could just sit down and ask yourself, like, what are your most sacred rituals, right? What do you do routinely in your life that's your thing? Maybe you listen to music. Maybe you take photos. Maybe you write. What are the rituals of your being, right? What are the habits that you cherish the most that are repetitive and consistent? And and maybe they give you joy and maybe there are habits you'd like to change. Like, you know, whatever. For me these days, it's eating too much cheese. So like, like it could be a really positive habit or it could be like eating too much dairy. Like whatever it is, you want to start by bringing mindfulness to the repetition and the habituation. And then you want to notice, you want to notice clinging, the craving, or the aversion that arises when the routine or the habit gets dislodged, right? When anicca arises and the habit cannot happen, you want to notice the suffering, right? You want to notice the sense of grief, whatever it is, the smaller amount of grief, whatever it could be. And I'll just give you an example. So like I said, I'm out of town. I'm down visiting my dad. I'm in Los Angeles. I've been bopping around for like the trip didn't go exactly as as planned, or it did go exactly as planned, but I didn't plan it very well. So I'm not going to blame the trip. I'll just blame myself. But I've been bopping around, and I just came down with this sense like, oh, I'm going to have this routine. I'm going to meditate still in the mornings, and then I'll do some work, and then I'm going to do some telehealth, and then I'll teach on Wednesday. And man, I haven't been able to keep a consistent schedule for the last five days. And I could feel the loss of the comfort in the routine. I kept trying to, God, I just want a routine, but I'm just totally out of sorts with not having the routine. And I could see clearly that the anicca was really throwing me. There was a dukkha there and a desire to try and control this kind of chaotic situation and make it into my routine that I'm used to. And at every turn, it's been thwarted by anicca and dukkha every step of the way. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about these non-conscious habits and routines of living, whether they're skillful or unskillful at this point. And we want to see the attachment. We want to see what happens when they arise. We want to see what happens when we don't get them and we're used to getting them and watching that part of consciousness. The next part is once we can begin to see, once we can bring the non-conscious habits into awareness, then the idea, of course, is to ask ourselves, are they skillful? Are they unskillful? Are these habits planting long-term seeds of happiness and well-being? 
Are they short-term gains, right? Is it a dependence that I have? Why am I clinging to this habit? So then you want to look at your habits and start categorizing them in the sense of craving and aversion, right? Is this dukkha or is this something that's helpful for me, helpful for others? So we always want to look at things in terms of, is this skillful? Is this unskillful? So we bring the clinging of the habits into awareness and then we start looking and what is exactly it is that we're clinging to. And then of course, then of course, the easiest part, which is then you let go of the habit if it's unskillful, right? So now that part could take your whole life, but either way, the the next step of course is to make the commitment to identify the habits of being that are unskillful and practice letting go. And then the other part of habit clinging, this is the interesting one. The other part of this is to cultivate skillful habits in terms of the Eightfold Path. So one of the things to remember about, I find this so fascinating, to remember about the Eightfold Path is that the first thing we're supposed to do is cultivate the tools of meditation and the Eightfolds of the Path to a degree where we're healthfully and skillfully clinging to it, right? We need to grab on to the habits of meditation, the habits of our precept, the habits of our jhanas, the habits of loving kindness, right? These are all habitual, right? We want to meditate regularly. We want to go on retreat regularly. We want to journal, reflect. So we want to cling skillfully to the path to bring the path into being, which is why the Buddha refers to the Eightfold Path as a type of clinging that leads to the end of all clinging. So the Buddha acknowledges that the path is in fact a set of habits that we must at least cling to enough to get the success to where we can then at the end of the path, let go of the path itself. So the path is considered a type of clinging. It's a skillful clinging, but it's still a set of habits that we cling to. And one could say that it is in fact a kind of rite and ritual, not rite and ritual as in like, blind obedience to a routine, but that it is kind of sacred, that it has the religiosity of routine, of people coming together and practicing in the same way that you see with all kinds of spiritual traditions and religions. There is a clinging to it that still has that resonance of what the Buddha refers to as rites and rituals, right? And we get attached to our, I'm hugely attached to my meditation practice. I cling to that thing like a lifeboat all the time, right? And so, but I know that clinging to the meditation in the beginning is okay to get the effect of the meditation, while I also know that at some point, I'll be mature enough in practice to let go of the practice itself. So included in this clinging habit part, habits of clinging, is in fact, the instruction to cultivate clinging to the path itself so we can bring the results of the path into being in preparation for the phrase I mentioned earlier, which is clinging to nothing of this world, including the Dharma, right? Letting go of the Dharma itself because the Buddha understood that the Dharma is a fabrication. It's a it's a concept. It has all this language in it. Not that language is bad, of course, but it has a lot of conceptualization. It has habits that we cling to. It creates pleasure that's not the pleasure of 
nirvana, pleasure of jhana, pleasure of compassion, has all these things that we we cling to that are not the ultimate happiness of liberation. But we engage in the path knowing that clinging to the path is another form of suffering. But we have to hold on long enough to be able to let go. If we don't hold on long enough to get the benefits, then we can't do the bigger letting go that happens at the end of the journey. So that's habits clinging, right? That's habits clinging. And let me see if I have any other examples here. No, I think those were the ones I wanted to mention. Yeah. Okay. Wednesday wake up is one of my habit clinging <laughs> habit clingings. I cling to this every week. So the last one in our set, right? Sense clinging, view clinging, habit clinging. And then there's another one. And the last one is identity clinging or clinging to self, right? Clinging to self-concept. Now, sometimes you'll hear it written, doctrine of self-clinging. And other times it's just identity clinging or self-clinging. You'll see it in different ways. Now, this, of course, is the pathway to the not-self teachings. We're not going to go there right now, but this is, of course, the pathway to talking about the not-self teachings. But... In this context, we're going to look at it in this family of clingings, these four clingings. So what I'm going to show you is how the first three clingings that we've just talked about actually give rise to this last one. So this last one, identity clinging, it is, it is sort of its own clinging. One can cling to like the ego, like I am, right? So you can have that real sense of I, and that is the probably strongest scenario of self-clinging, but also clinging to self exists within our habits, our views, and our sensual pursuits. That's where we get a lot of our identity. So it's not totally a new category. It's really kind of at the crossroads of all three of these categories that we've been talking about. And I'll explain this and hopefully this will make sense. So if we look at the three categories that we've been talking about with clinging, the first one was sense clinging, right? Sense contact. And so sense contact is the pleasures that we enjoy. It's the pleasures we enjoy. It's the engine and the fuel of craving, right? It's the fuel of all desire. We desire things, right? We desire sensations. We desire emotions. We desire all of these things that titillate us in different ways. So Sense clinging really is the answer to the question, what makes you happy? Not happy as in liberated, but what just makes you happy day to day? That cup of coffee, that Netflix show, what is it that you're pursuing, right? What are you going for? Maybe um, what really makes you happy is some art. Maybe what really makes you happy is having a family and parenting. Maybe what really makes you happy is being outdoors. Anything that moves us through the world. So this sense contact is about the objects, right? It's about the feeling of the sensations and what sensations. It's the what. What stimulates you? What gives you that feeling of being alive? That's the sense contact. Now, having that creates a sense of self because I'm doing it, right? Ooh, I really enjoyed that meal. Oh, I really enjoyed that movie. Oh, I really had a great day with my friends. So we can see that there's an identity. As much as we really, really like the object, there is an I 
that's consuming. Remember, clinging means clinging, attachment, but it also means feeding. And it also means seeking nourishment from. So remember that when we're talking about clinging, we're talking about feeding off something. So there's an I, a sense of self that arises whenever we talk about these pleasures that I went over here and I had such a good time and oh my gosh, I felt great. Look at all that eye making, right? For just talking about some pleasure that we had. So identity really comes up when we're consuming sensual pleasures, consuming sensual pleasures. So the second category is views. And this one's a little more, a little more obvious, right? Views, I have, a, I have a point of view, right? And not only do I have a point of view, my view is right, your view is wrong. Having views, it's hard to have a view without having a, self, a sense of self and clinging to, it's like, I don't know if it's even possible. Uh, I, maybe I'm not advanced enough to know that, but basically to have a view, you're gonna have a self, there's gonna be an I-making, a my-making that arises. And so views, right? Views is the meaning behind how we show up in the world. Our views represent how we think the world works, why we're doing what we're doing. And it's sometimes views, of course, are an explanation or a justification for our actions, right? We consume certain pleasures and we say, I'm consuming that because, and then we list the reason, the view that we have. So views, it's almost impossible to have a view without an I, right? There's an I, me, mine embedded in views. And the more we're attached to the view, the stronger the sense of I, right? The more we cling to the view, the stronger the sense of identification with the view itself. That's the way it goes, which is why we let go of views. As we let go of views and see how clinging to views creates suffering, the self begins to dissolve because as we let go of views and our need to be right about things or just need to have that orientation, then the sense of I starts to loosen up. The connection between view clinging and sense clinging is really interesting because the view tells you why and the sense clinging just tells you what the object is. So I'll give you an example. I know that's a little abstract. So let's just take the, the hedonistic example. So if I hold the view that the highest pleasure in life is just sense pleasures, then I'm going to pursue sense contact. That's going to be, that's what I'm going to do. My view dictates that that's how it's going to be expressed. If I think that there might be something more, I might opt a, opt a view that maybe I should approach pleasures with a sense of renunciation. And then I engage sense contact in a completely different way. The exact opposite, in fact. So our views tell us what are the objects that we're going to be craving, right? And sometimes, again, our views are unconscious. They're non-conscious and they just inform who we are as people because we've inherited them from culture, from parents, from religion, from education. So we don't, we're not always aware of what our point of view is. But again, if you have a view that human beings should care for the planet as part of what it is to be a citizen of the world, then the sense contact you might go after might be volunteering, right? You might get joy out of going to a protest or studying about things you can do around your house to decrease the use of plastics or saving energy, right? So you might get pleasure. Your sense contact 
might come from, quote unquote, saving the planet or engaging in planetary concern, which comes from the view which says, I believe this is worth doing. This is how the world should work, or I think the world should work this way, so I'm going to live this way. This is where I'm going to get my pleasure. So it's subtle, but the more you meditate and the more you conceptualize how the mind operates, you begin to see that most moments there's some kind of view at play. There's something going on in the background that's your view that's coloring, coloring how you're craving in the moment. So the third one is what we just talked about, which is habit practices. If our view tells us why I'm going to do something, and our sense clinging is the object that we go for, habits are just the physical actions, right? Habits are just the embodiment of the view that's chasing a desire. This is how consciousness operates. So our view is, what do I think the meaning of life is? Um, for me, my view is that human beings are healthier when they're out in nature. That's my view. What's my habit? I'm going to go spend a lot of time hiking. And what's the sense contact? Seeing the beauty of the world, feeling the joy of witnessing nature or that feeling of being out in nature or being by a campfire. So the view I have informs my habits and forms what I crave, what I'm seeking for pleasure. And so all three of these intertwine to form a sense of eye making, right? We have a view, we have our pleasures, and we have our actions of pursuing those pleasures. Those three clingings create an identity, and we can cling to that identity. And so the fourth one really is just the crossroads of these three experiences that are happening constantly in consciousness, constantly in consciousness. If you have a view that says part of what it is to be human is to have a family, then what is your behavior going to look like? Your behavior is going to be to create a, <laughs> create a family. And the pleasure you seek is going to be that connection with your kids, with your partner, with the community that you're in. So every moment there arises a view, a habit, and a sense contact, right? And there's an eye at the center of it. The challenge is, is that we cling to the eye, of, of course, and we think that the eye is real, solid, and a thing, and not just a process out of which other processes are springing. So if you think about it, habits always changing, right? Pleasurable sensations arising and passing away, and not always available, mind you. Our habits are practiced, and views, views change. None of these are permanent, and yet, as these things are arising and passing away, we are clinging to them, and the clinging to them then creates the sense of I which we then cling to the eye as also something that we don't want to give up, the sense of ego, right? So that is the, the list of clingings. And I know it's complicated and, and abstract, but once you get into it, what you'll find is that as mindfulness becomes clearer and as you begin to ask yourself, well, what are my habits? Like, how am I really living? And what pleasures am I really seeking and why? Like, why am I pursuing these pleasures? Why do I pursue living a particular way? As I like to say, why am I showing up in the world this way? What is my view? You know, meditation is a deep self-reflection on how we're showing up moment to moment. And the challenge is to 
cling in a way that's healthy, right? To skillfully cling to a view and a set of habits and a set of pleasures that are going to do the least amount of harm to ourselves and others. So to bring this all together, just take the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path begins with skillful view. And what is that view? Actions have consequences. That's part of the view. And that intentional actions can have good consequences. We can change our actions. And another part of skillful view is that there's a higher level of happiness that lies beyond sense contact. That's the view. So if we embody that view, well, what comes next? Well, skillful actions, the precepts, right? I'm going to try to live a life of non-harm, right? I'm going to cultivate the folds of the path. I'm going to speak skillfully with kindness and truthfulness and authenticity. I'm going to cultivate a boundless heart of compassion and kindness. I'm going to cultivate... <laughs> what other things do we cultivate in the Dharma? Equanimity, uh, investigation, the pleasure of the jhanas. So we see that the Dharma invites us to take on a view. It invites us to take on a set of habits. And it actually invites us to take on pleasure as well, the sense contact. Now, in the Dharma, the view that there is a higher happiness encourages a healthy clinging to meditative practices which produce sense contact, but the sense contact comes from what? Generosity, loving kindness, meditation practice. So you can see that the Buddha is leveraging these natural clinging processes of consciousness to liberate us from suffering. We're using the very clinging that the heart and mind do. We're using mindfulness to be aware of how clinging works so we can let go of that which we cling to that causes suffering. And then temporarily, in my case, it's been like 30 years, we temporarily cling to the Dharma, hoping for liberation. And as we become close to that liberated state or point, however you want to say it, we then let go of the path itself. We uncling to that final clinging. And that is the way that the path is set up. It's a, it's a type of clinging. So I hope that helps. I hope that gives you at least some frames of references to see why, again, this is in the very, like, refrain of Vipassana, right? This is like the teaching, right? This is the meditation teaching that we take into account impermanence. We practice internally and externally. We practice with a continuous mindfulness so we can know the present moment in its richest form and see clearly into its nature. And lastly, we live a life or we orient ourselves to non-clinging with our highest aspiration to let go completely into liberation. <laughs> uh, I just thought to myself, the thought actually went by, that's the best I can do with this topic. I feel like this topic is so complicated and abstract. <laughs> and it's been so long since I've talked about it because I usually talk about it in, I think I said this when I first did the first set of the series was, I usually talk about it in a class so we can really go deep into like six weeks or something. So it's been four or five weeks. So we've basically done it. But um, it's challenging to talk about clinging. It's challenging to to look at four foundations of mindfulness and then say to ourselves, OK, there's four foundations of mindfulness. OK, that's more than I need. 
And then there's four things I can do with those four foundations. So that's 16 possibilities of practice. What the heck, what is going on? It just can get confusing and overwhelming. So just to remind you that even in the Satipatthana Sutta, it is very clear that any of the Satipatthanas can lead to liberation. You don't have to practice all of them. Just use the ones that call to your heart, use the ones that make sense, and just do enough to make it feel like it's a solid practice. You don't want to make a list of 16 <laughs> things that you have to do and start going down the list of 16 possible practices because it's not, it's not how it works. You just pick one of the foundations that moment to moment feels most skillful and pick one of the frameworks that works in that moment. Maybe one minute it is concentration. Maybe another minute it's watching someone else externally and noticing their sorrow or grief. Or maybe one minute it's just about things arising and passing away. Once you get into the habit of looking back at these two lists of four, you can start crafting more and more opportunities for practice for yourself. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Thank you so much for your kind attention. I really appreciate you bearing with me for like six weeks as we've gone we've gone through all this. Um, at some point, I'm going to have to go back and listen to, to the last few weeks and see how these actually came off. But these are really important. If you have questions about this, please reach out. Shoot me an email. Uh, this stuff is pretty... It just gets very heady at a point. I hope there was at least some practicality in there. I was noticing... <laughs> this week, like I said, it's just been a topsy-turvy week. It's fine, but it's just been a lot of ups and downs. And I'm totally craving my routine, which I don't have. And then I thought to myself, I can't believe like I agreed to do Wednesday wake up like when I'm traveling. Like I really thought this would be easier to do. And then immediately after that, the craving was there, was like, Oh yeah, no, we're doing that. <laughs> we're going to do this if I have to stack suitcases. Like this is going to happen because like I take refuge, like there's a familiarity of seeing you every week and I enjoy, you know, I enjoy the heck out of it, of course. So like there's a detachment. I have a strong, you know, craving and I'm attached to like the regularity, like that rhythm for me spiritually is with you all every week. Like this is like the main dive into Dharma, you know, minus my own solo sitting. So I got to see like, oh, I've got this habit and it's Wednesday wake up and I have a view of why it's important. It has, it's, there's sense pleasure in it. I get joy from being with you and teaching and there's just so much, so much fun in different ways. I learn so much from it. And then it's just a habit. But then if I can't have it, then there's dukkha because I'm really attached to it. So any type of habit you can really see in your life, even your spiritual ones, are something uh, to really notice when it comes to it comes to the clinging. <sighs> All right, my friends. Ooh, we're going to end on time, too. Yay. All right. For those who have to go, much love to you. Take care of yourself. Be well. Thanks for coming. For those who want to stay for a few minutes of meta closer, we'll fall back into presence. Take a couple intentional breaths, relaxing fully into body. What does it feel like to be sitting in this moment? And how do you know it?
Notice if the heart or mind is reaching out, desiring or wanting the rest of your evening to be a particular way, clinging, an evening routine perhaps. Take another long, slow, deep breath. Breathe in some rest and well-being. Breathe out all the stress and discontent. Let's remind ourselves once again that we've completed another evening of practice. And let's aspire that all the insight, wisdom, connectivity, and community serve the highest purpose of being a benefit to every person we come in contact with. And that all beings share in the fruits of our liberation. May all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings know true kindness, true joy, true love and compassion in this very life. May all beings be free. May all beings be free. Well, my friends, lovely to see you as always. Thank you so much for returning once again and making this happen. Much love to you. Hope to see you when I land <laughs> back in PDX. Take care of yourself. Be well. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. 
While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.